European project has uh, clearly, from its inception, been an exercise in the gradual, though multi-speed, integration of important elements of economic, political and social affairs. European economic and labour market integration seeks, through minimising the frictions of mobility, to secure the best possible fit between recruitment needs and an appropriately skilled workforce. This in turn takes its rationale both from the promise of enhanced economic efficiency and, in a sense, from the ethics of meritocracy. Hence, the European Council regulation statement entitles all nationals of an EU member state to take up and engage in gainful employment on the territory of another member state in conformity with the relevant regulations applicable to national workers. The importance of highly skilled mobility for growth, for efficiency and opportunity is underscored by the fact that there remains important political economic variegation on a national and regional level within Europe, despite economic and income <coughs> convergence. Um, Recky has discussed this, this convergence and, and uh, its implications for intra-EU migration. In the context of understanding highly skilled migration, it is also important to state that whatever the reality, it is the perception of ongoing differences in the opportunity structure provided by different places that drives a great deal of migration. Empirically, a certain degree of convergence may take place, but in certain sectors of the labour market, certainly, strong perceptions of significant variegation can prevail. Fundamentally, what we're arguing here then, essentially, is that place still matters, is still highly significant. The motivation to migrate from particular places to other particular places is driven in part by what places mean, and this in turn is shaped by the agency of place. Tseng, in relation to Shanghai, has discussed the way in which Shanghai has very successfully marketed itself as a destination for the highly skilled. And London, in a sense, although using different um, symbolic material, has done uh, very similar things in terms of uh, communicating uh, a message about itself globally and certainly within Europe. On another level, pragmatically, real co-presence in the sense of corporeal or physical proximity to a given stock of human capital remains important to an individual's ability to progress their own competencies, their own capacities and their career. And Beaverstock and Hall have discussed, about, discussed the global talent pool in London, the significance of the global talent pool both to the development of London itself and as an ongoing magnet for uh, the attraction of um, future highly skilled. The war for talent, of course, is a, is a concept that's been much discussed over recent um, years. On both a global and a European context, firms, cities and countries compete in complex relationships with one another, and not always compatibly, to attract the value-adding potential of the talented migrant. In the context of London, Beaverstock and Hall have argued that the city's competitiveness is found on its ability to attract and retain elite foreign workers in order to nourish its global talent pool, expand business opportunities and drive innovation and create wealth. In the context in which talent circulates in a global labour market increasingly characterised by what Beaverstock refers to as hypermobility between world cities, competition to attract and retain global talent is likely to become increasingly keen. This paper will explore one aspect of this opportunity-driven mobility in the form of French highly skilled migration to London and the particular role played by talent within this context. Intra-EU highly skilled migrants would appear to epitomise, in some sense, opportunity-driven mobility and may be taken as something of a test case for understanding the general and specific uh, dimensions of talent migration. 
Such migrants have been referred to as Eurostars, as free movers, as super movers. They're mobile, they're primarily young, with high levels of education, skills and language proficiency. The UK is a destination of particular attraction for highly skilled, with one third of all EU non-nationals in the UK having tertiary level credentials. London's become a prime destination of European free movement. So this is one example of a broader reality, namely the preeminence of London as a magnet for the world's brightest and best. So according to the Z-Yen Global Financial Centre Index, 2007-11, to 11, this places London as the premier global city for the quality of its people, defined here in terms of intellectual capital within the context of a flexible labour market. Right. John has sort of set out the, the background context to this in terms of the, the war for talent, and now I'm just going to say something specifically about our data on the French And what we want to argue in this paper is that the French represent almost a test case for researching talented migration within the EU. As Michael mentioned at the outset, although the French are very significant, particularly in London, they are a very under-researched group and in many respects exist under the radar, partly because they're white, they're from Western Europe, they're part of the old EU, they don't tend to figure very much in uh, glaring media headlines. Nonetheless, it is um, important to look at the numbers, and it is difficult to get accurate numbers because, as you know, there's no systematic mechanism for measuring mobility within the old European Union countries. Nonetheless, the census 2011 would suggest that there's just under 130,000 French-born people in England and Wales, which is an increase from the Eurostat figures of 114,000 in 2009. There are some other um, much larger but unverifiable estimates that would suggest there are 300,000 French people or 400,000 French people, but those figures do seem to be way out of line with the census data. Now, if we use um, another data source to try to capture the numbers, uh, we looked at NINO data for the issuing of national insurance numbers. Again, it's not entirely accurate because it just tells you about people who have arrived newly in the country and get a national insurance number. We don't know about the further mobility of those people. But nonetheless, using NINO data, 2006-7, 2009-10, over 80,000 um, newly arrived French nationals were allocated national insurance numbers. Now, it has been suggested in sort of popular discourses that London is the lar- fourth largest French city or that South Kensington is the 21st arrondissement of Paris. And if any of you have been to South Kensington recently, then you'll probably <coughs> realise why it has that reputation. Okay, so just to say something about our study, I'll skip over this quite briefly because you've got the handouts anyway, so you can uh, read this information for yourselves. But this is an 18-month study. Uh, We have to mention our sponsor, the Economic and Social Research Council. Uh, Basically, we were using qualitative methods to get detailed biographies of people's lived experiences of migration. We used semi-structured interviews and a focus group. 37 participants, as you can see, we had slightly more women than men in the age range of mid-30s to mid-40s. The majority had arrived in the UK in the 2000s, though some had been here longer. So we were looking primarily at a fairly settled group. However, having said that, some of our participants had arrived fairly recently, so we were capturing some elements of dynamism, and most of them were married and had families here with them in the UK. Now, what was interesting for us is that most of our participants were quite clear about London as Europe's epicentre of opportunity. 
They saw London as Europe's undisputed financial capital. Pierre, who had moved here from Frankfurt, which in itself is a fairly significant financial centre, described his move to London as getting closer to the sun. Obviously, he didn't mean in terms of the weather. Now, for those with ambition to escalate their careers in business and finance, London was therefore the place to be. As Claudine suggests, London is more interesting than anywhere else because it's where it happens. That's where the action is. That's where the talent is. Okay, this points to the importance of place in accessing and utilising what we would term relationally embedded social networks for the accumulation and escalation of career. Now, in the literature, there is this discussion about a shift which has taken place in recent years from what has been called a qualificationism to a focus on talent, and that's really what we want to talk about now. So Senate has said that within the new economy, our craftsmanship model, based on qualifications, is being replaced by a focus on more performance measures of talent. Our data are replete with references to London as definitively open and meritocratic in comparison to Paris. London was seen as embracing this logic of the new economy. There was a willingness and a capacity to recognise and grant opportunity to pure talent, even in the absence of an appropriate qualification. Now, that didn't mean that the participants were devaluing higher education. Almost all of them had university degrees and many had MBAs. But it was more about a liberalisation of attitudes to how talent is measured and rewarded. Now, this qualificational liberalism, if you want to call it that, was judged as enhancing meritocracy. So Colette said, I think here, in terms of work, it's more about what you can do, whereas in France, it's what diploma you have. Sometimes when you're in your 40s or 50s, they're still looking to see what degree you have. Whereas here, I think it's more about experience, about what you have achieved that defines your next job. Now, Kazapov's son argues that cities can be understood as open systems with a capacity for their own agency. But nevertheless, of course, cities are embedded and nested in broader social, economic and institutional contexts. They are shaped by the nation-state in which they are located. So in this way, London is obviously a global city, but of course it is also a national capital, and it shares and intensifies the qualities of the UK itself as a neoliberal variant of welfare capitalism. The recognition and valuing of London for its free market modus operandi was clearly evident in the data. And this led to what participants described as a higher and fire culture, so Celine said, here you know, it's higher and higher. But what was interesting to us is that for these group of people who very much define themselves as talented, higher and fire was not something to be scared of. Because it was based on performance in role, and if you were seen to be good, then you were okay. Higher and fire was also seen to offer an opportunity for talent and to enable companies to benefit from much needed injection of new ideas. It was a mechanism for renewal. Beatrix said, every time you get a new person, they want to prove themselves, so they'll do everything they can to come up with great ideas. If you've been in a company for 15 years and you know that they're not going to hire you, then you are less inclined to go over your own limit. This also relates to the question of discrimination as well. Um, the working environment in London was represented uh, in essentially, generally, non-discriminatory terms by 
the vast majority of the participants that we interviewed. Um, and this was seen as being fundamental to the nature of London as a place that does effectively reward talent. So according to Ordeal, using all the, the, the usual list of suspects, uh, if you're good at what you do, you, could, you, could be given, you will be given a chance, whether you're black, white, from Asia, Muslims, Catholics or Hindu. A number of our participants also made mention of the relative absence of age-based discrimination in, in the London economic environment. Um, this was con certainly contrasted dramatically to the situation in France. So according to Charles, I think here the position against the older incorporation life is better. You've got people above 60 still working. In France there's a tendency that above 45, you're called a senior, and the senior is the door before retirement. In the mindset of the people, it's finished, it's over, the game is over. However, the general nature of, of London as a non-discriminatory space was qualified really quite significantly by some of the, uh, the testimonies we got about the position of women, particularly in the financial uh, sector, uh, where, um, although there was some contest around this, um, there was a recognition of the problem of the glass ceiling and that the role of women, particularly the role of women as mothers, had a significant impact upon their ability to either secure promotion or to sustain the requirements of high-level work in that field. <coughs> Flexibility was also uh, a quality that was attributed to the London economic environment and again was something that was seen to be particularly um, fitted with the rewarding of talent. Many participants extolled the virtues of London as a location uh, that in its definitive flexibility enabled a kind of career sovereignty. By that we're talking about people's ability to make really significant choices about the pathways that their career take, takes, including um, the, the movement between occupational activities. Such flexibility was made possible by the accessible and performance-driven measures of talent that was commonplace within the capital. So according to Valentin, I think it's much easier to move from one industry to another in London. People are ready to give you a challenge, as I say, based on your skill. According to Irene, the ability to think outside the box and to reinvent yourself is huge in England. Whereas in France, you embark on your life path, probably at the age of 16, when you choose your baccalaureate. And that is a tragedy. You cannot get out of that because it's a very rigid attitude. And nobody, the employer or the supervisor or whatever will look at you because you will not have all the, like the general in the army, you will not have all the stripes. Another dimension of this uh, recognition and, and rewarding of talent was, there was uh, unsurprisingly, the question of remuneration. London was defined in contradistinction to Paris as a place that was culturally and ethically comfortable with the remuneration of talent. So according to Celine in London, if you do a good job, you stay, you make big money, whatever. In France, it's still a stigma. In France, dramatic salary inequalities and performance-driven job insecurity were both considered by many of our participants to be, in some sense or other, stigmatised. The French political economic model was, in general terms by our participants, associated with job security, but at the cost of economic stagnation. In contrast, London was marked by flexibility, but at the cost to some of insecurity, but re rephrasing what I'm Restating what Louise has said, for those people who are sufficiently talented and sufficiently hard-working, the insecurity is not considered to be job-threatening. In a sense, although not all of our participants necessarily used this, this term, some did, some didn't, there was a, a broad unanimity about the fact that this recognition of talent said something not only about London, but about something more, more general than that. 
business culture in the context of London was presented by many as one dimension of economic culture, which in a sense was understood as one dimension of a national culture, which was seen by some participants to express an, a kind of Anglo-Saxon character, which framed their expectations, motivations, evaluations of working life in London. And in these kind of contexts, the similarity between the UK and the US was, was a frequent reference point as well. Some participants express this more explicitly than others. So according to Damien, I'm here because I'm not really a French patriot at all. So this is why I always wanted to live abroad. I'm very into English, American, Anglo-Saxon civilizations. In a sense, you can here see from Jean a more specific invocation of talent recognition as being something to do with an Anglo-Saxon uh, model and mentality. It's not uncommon in the UK or in the US, which is what we will be calling, coming from Paris or from France in particular, the Anglo-Saxon style, to identify early the skill of talented people or good ideas and give these people or these ideas a chance. While in France, typically, you have to follow some form of internal protocol of submitting these ideas to your manager, who in turn is going to filter it out, and you will have lost complete ownership of the end project. Here, at least, you do have this recognition of what you do, which could lead to the very quick rise and promotion. Okay, so what we're really talking about here is this acknowledgement of the difference between a very French working environment and this so-called Anglo-Saxon style of working. Now, Bailey and Boyle have argued that within the European Union, while political borders may have been removed for some, uh, social, cultural and political structures remain, which make movement between these different countries and these different environments perhaps less easy than may have been imagined. There is still this divergence of styles and structures. And this raises questions about the extent to which skills and talent are transferable across national borders. As um, Shadu points out, the fact that skills are socially constructed so that the nature and sufficiency of skills must be recognised within a particular national context. This cultural and social capital required and pertinent to one country may not be easily transferred to another. As uh, Umut Earl has argued, you can't put your skill and your talent in your suitcase and transfer it across national borders if it's not recognised as such when you get there. Now, this leads to the specificities of different business cultures, which is still evident within an EU context. And this impacts on this issue that we're talking about, the transferability of skills and recognition of talent. Accordingly, this Anglo-Saxonism comes with a substantive cultural qualities which in turn serve as potentially barriers. Participants referred to differences in business language, business culture, business styles of communication, and they really spoke about how you had to learn this when you first arrived. But what was interesting is all of our participants would see themselves as having successfully adapted to this Anglo-Saxon style of working. And what that then meant was that going back to France and working in a French business culture, they deemed to be very difficult. Once you get used to one style of working, to go and work somewhere else is not easy. So Pierre said it would be extremely difficult to read the ways, how to operate, to learn new codes all over again after 20 years abroad. So Valentine is an example of this when she describes a friend of hers who has recently arrived from France. And she says... He's really French in behaviour, quite arrogant, secure, you know, the way he talks, and there's a clash of culture. He hasn't been able to adapt because probably he's just used to the French mental frame. He is behaving like a French person. French people are very outspoken, where in an English environment you can't be like that. 
I mean, you can say things, but there is a way of saying it. And talking to him has made me realise that I'm not French anymore because I would not behave like him in that environment. He understands that he has to change, but he has to do that work on himself. So clearly our participants in the main recognise this need for them to change, to adapt to this new way of working, and they all felt that they had successfully negotiated that. So our participants on the whole, quite unsurprisingly given their, their success in, in the, the circumstances here in London, were to a certain extent advocates of a, of a neoliberal model. We understand that this is a highly debatable concept, but it's an important one. Um, which had, in their experience of work and life, certainly in London, delivered on their expectations of escalation and of accumulation. So there's little evidence of any kind of critical awareness uh, or critical dialogue of, of the failures of London, in any sense, as a place of opportunity. This is significant because, according to Kayambe, most A8 nationals with high skills and qualifications are, in fact, still concentrated in low-skill occupations. By no means is, is London experienced as a place for escalation and accumulation, therefore, by all people. Uh, there was also little, if any, reflection on the limitations or the dysfunctions of the nature of the economic or the financial environment in which many of them were working. The deregulated financial or economic markets that are seen to characterise London um, were, were generally seen in, in, in positive ways, and the light-touch regulation which clearly is inextricably connected to the banking crisis of 2008, was also not subjected to any form of critique whatsoever. As many participants could be said to be firmly located within what Cracker refers to as the dealer class, it is perhaps unsurprising to find that many of them expressing support for London's adoption of a, of a light-touch regulation uh, environment. In this regard, our participants will probably welcome the recent statement by David Cameron, uh, in December 2011, the city still faces the same issue it faced before the summit. There is regulation coming down the track, the track having its destination in, in, in the EU, uh, its, its origin in the EU. And the question is, how do we deal with that? If you're in the city and concerned, the positive thing is that the UK government and David Cameron is fighting your corner in Europe. Kratka has questioned the central role of the financial classes in regional economic development stressing instead the manner in which growth and development arise out of the dynamic interaction that takes place between multiple constituencies in a complex social environment, very much critiquing the kind of Florida model here that attracting the creative classes is the key to the, the development, economic development of a region. The long-term economic success of London would appear then to lie in a more variegated approach, both to migration and to urban and economic policy that seeks to consolidate and enrich the diversity of London. An excessively one-dimensional focus on attracting the brightest and the best, we would argue, may not furnish London with all it needs to sustain its long-term development. By way of conclusion, a few policy questions here. While recognising the importance of diversity for London's economic development, it is still relevant to consider the need for that development of recruiting highly skilled migrants. So in, there, in that respect, what threats and opportunities face London post-2008 as a global city able to attract and retain the world's brightest and best in an emerging condition of hypermobility between the world's leading financial centres. Secondly, given that it appears to be precisely the global and fundamentally the neoliberal nature of London and the UK that has been so attractive to EU skilled migrants, what does this tell us about the probable or best way forward for the EU as a whole? 
As EU freedom and mobility was so clearly appreciated by the highly skilled respondents in our study, how might the EU further support and develop such freedoms? If the UK were to vote in a forthcoming referendum to leave the EU, how might this impact upon the City of London as a global financial centre? And finally, given that EU mobility rights facilitate the movement of highly skilled migrants across member states, would leaving the union negatively impact upon London's ability to attract such migrants?